had a mentor share this with me early in my career, and I've always taken it with me. And he said, picture a big boardroom, and you know, you have your your CMO and your CEO and your CFO and your ops person and like all these important people around the room, but there's always got to be one empty seat every single meeting in the room. And that is the seat for the consumer. In fact, that seat should really be at the head of the table. It's so easy to kind of get caught up into, oh, I got to do this, this, and I have all these constituents, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if it doesn't resonate with the consumer. Hello and welcome to Good Data, Better Marketing, the ultimate guide to driving customer engagement. Today's episode features an interview with Ted Chi, Senior Vice President of Digital Marketing and Media Strategy at NBC Universal. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital first economy, being data driven is no longer aspirational, it's necessary. Find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to enable personalized, consistent, real time customer experiences by visiting segment.com. The entertainment industry moves fast. If you've worked in showbiz long enough, you know that change is the only constant. Like most industries, entertainment took a huge hit during the pandemic. Consumers were unable to venture out to theaters, and in turn, media companies were forced to pivot. Their playbook abruptly changed as blockbuster movies were released on streaming platforms. This majorly disrupted theatrical revenue, which declined from over $43 billion in 2019 to just $12 billion in 2020. But with this change also came a new learning. Delivering content in this way, direct to consumers, also offered up a more personalized approach of marketing to viewers. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ted Chi, Vice President of Digital Marketing and Media Strategy at NBC Universal. We discuss how data helps build relationships with consumers, the importance of CDPs, and why personalization is the holy grail of data-driven marketing. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. This will be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to you know, start off with some quick-fire questions, and yeah, I think I did shamelessly craft these with the NBC universe, if you will, in mind. So, Ted, my first really hard-hitting question, winter or summer Olympics? Winter. Oh, okay. The surprising rare winter fan among us. What events would you do if you could for winter? Well, I would just say I'm winter because I grew up in Boston. And if you live in Boston, if you're from the East Coast, you must like winter. You kind of must like winter. So my my sport would be hockey. Just growing up as a Bruins fan. So hockey. You had a lot of fights growing up, Ted? Uh, not really. But. <laughs> nice. I recently tried to roller skate when I was in LA and I actually fell down so many times. It's pretty embarrassing. And I can say that falling hurts a lot more when you're an adult and when you're tall. So kudos to you for picking a hard sport to master. The Next sport th- should have been curling or something because at least the longevity for curl. I have always wondered, what do professional curlers do when they're not in the Olympics? That's the thing. Longest yeah. tenure of any athlete, right? Like what's the average Especially. age of a curler for sure? Different than a hockey person. Next one's really tough. Okay. So think about this one is, would you rather go head to head with a Velociraptor or a T-Rex? I think I'd go against a Velociraptor. Velociraptors are actually, they're smaller than they're depicted in the films. Don't get me in trouble with any of our filmmakers, but but yeah, yeah. I'd probably get my head bit off by a T-Rex, but all good. That natural history museum knowledge is coming into play right now. I right. I always think people say like tiny arms with T-Rexes. So they're 
more likely to say that one, but okay. Velociraptor. Tiny arms, but big mouths. That's true. What did Samuel L. Jackson say is the iconic line? What was it hold on to your butts? Is that right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Last question, Ted. What was your first job? My first job was a paper boy. And again, this is an East Coast thing, but like just riding my bike in the snow, probably one of the most difficult jobs I've ever had. But yeah, growing up in the Boston area and, and riding your bike uphill both ways, I'm sure, in the snow. Yes. Definitely. And then uh, I walk five miles and tell my kids all about it. And exactly. Not really. Yeah. That's good. My first job, I was a hostess at a restaurant, but they called me the ambassador of first impressions. So I guess that guy should have been the marketer and not me, maybe, because that's quite a thing to call a hostess. So yeah, everybody kind of starts in their, in a different place. From Busboy, Ted, what was your career journey? How did you get to where you are today? Well, from Paperboy, it was like, I knew the rest of all my jobs would be easy after that. But in all seriousness, I always wanted to do something that I just really enjoyed. I mean, it sounds a little philosophical and corny, but life is short. And I had a lot of friends growing up who were nothing against like, you know, consultants or iBankers and those guys, some of the smartest folks I've met, but I just, I wanted to do something that like day to day I could go in and, and, and really have fun and really felt like something. I just wanted to do something I could relate to. So the funny thing when I, like my first job in college was actually, I interned, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Which is just like everyone, you know? Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to be in the court and I'm going to save the world and I'm going to have these great, incredible debates with people. I'm going to win the jury. And I hated it. I just, I couldn't do it. I did one internship and I actually even took the LSAT. And I think I was just trying to appease my parents because yep. they, they were immigrants. And they want everyone to be kind of, I think Bose talked about this, like the, the doctors, the lawyers. Yeah, but, she talked about that yesterday, that exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. I was just going to say the first real job out of college, I was a banker. So I was part of a management training program. I really just wanted to learn kind of the ins and outs of businesses and what kind of makes them tick. I didn't know I wanted to be a marketer per se, for sure, or in sales or in finance per se. But it was an opportunity to just get exposed to a lot of different industries. I basically spent like a year of my life sitting in an office with stacks of annual reports, like looking at them, recommending, yeah. going to the managers and tell, oh, yeah, we should, we should uh, extend credit or not. And I was actually a teller, did new accounts, consumer loans, and then kind of finished it up just with being a loan officer. So that was kind of like the beginning of it. Wow. And then after that, I just kind of embarked on more of a marketing path. How'd you make that jump from banker to marketer? At a certain point, I'm like, I kind of went back to my ethos. I'm like, I got to do something. I got to do something I like. Yeah. You're like, I uh, can't look at another annual report. It's not going to happen today. Yeah. But I will say it served me well. And gone are the days of marketing. I'm like the the madman. I'm going to just do a cool TV spot and a letter rip and be done with it. It's very much, well, it's kind of a data-centric event this week, but it's very much about data and the numbers and KPIs, et cetera. So the banking has really helped. I won't go through my long career. Your storied career. I don't know if it's storied, but it's long. (laughs) The theme of my career has been startup, big company. And I'll be at a big Fortune 500, Fortune 100 company for, you know, good five years and I'll get bored and tired and then I'll go to startup and we'll run out of money or get a tiny exit and then go back to a big company. So that's kind of been just a general trend. 
But throughout that process, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of different things within marketing, whether it's I was an affiliate marketing manager around the, the, the dot-com bomb, which is probably when a lot of the people on this call like weren't even born or something like that. That's <laughs> probably true. It's probably true. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Let me know but, any uh, lessons you learned though, Ted. You know, I gotta I gotta learn. It's it's timing. It was actually it was fascinating because it was a site called Athletes Direct. Well, that was okay. one of the businesses. And we built websites for athletes. So we owned KobeBride.com and we tried to monetize the content, basically working with their managers, kind of, you know, said, hey, here's what Kobe wrote, Anna Kornikova, et cetera. Fantastic experience learning affiliate marketing. I didn't even know what affiliate marketing was back then. And quite frankly, it hasn't changed very much. Like 20 plus years, <laughs> it's kind of like same. the same thing. Even like we were using Be Free, and I think it was like Commission Junction back then. I think they're still around. I think they're part of is it Rakuten? I don't even remember. Yeah, but I think um, so. yeah, I spent some time at Broadband. After that, I I went to Activision in their games group. Obviously, it, it was a gaming company, and worked on all things Tony Hawk and Marvel. Back then, it was console games. Funny story about that. So that was a it was a brand management role as opposed to like affiliate marketing or just a general digital marketing. But it was truly an opportunity to own a business. And I remember I was I was in a meeting and I was presenting something, and you know, as a marketer, you're like, yeah, it's brand management, but I'm the marketer and. Yeah. So I'm going to like talk about all this, this campaign or we're going to generate impressions. And, and I remember one of the questions was like, so why is our cog so high? Why is our cost of goods so high? Cause this is a physical product back then. These are console games. And damn, I didn't even like, I gathered the information. I knew what the cogs were, but I don't know exactly why the numbers are, why are the right. cost of the discs so high? I just, I didn't know. So it really kind of shifted. Like I really took that experience. I'm like, you know what? It's not just about like, it's a bigger picture. It's like what ultimately the why PNL. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Is driving towards the business results. Like marketing is is an effort to do that, right? And yeah, keeping that yeah. in mind. That's really cool. So and the, and the other yeah. fun story about Activision, I'd say, is that back in the day, it was all about console games. Like if you were playing console, if you were playing like on your Xbox and PlayStation and all these high fidelity immersive games. That's really where you wanted to be. And then these two random guys, like they left Activision. They went to go start a company called Jam.Mobile. And it was subsequently acquired by EA. I think they went public and they're acquired by EA for like, you know, six, 700 million. At the time it was a lot of money, still a lot of money. The games were really kind of archaic and they're playing on their old device. This is pre-iPhone, but they understood this consumer behavior that I don't, I don't think anyone else was really dialed into at that time. So really kudos to, to those guys. And you look at where mobile gaming is now. So the takeaway for me from that was like, yeah, you may think you're on a certain path, but there's so many kind of divergent views and so many different insights that we may not be tapped into as much as we should. And I think as marketers, we're always trying to uncover those things. That's really interesting. I think one of the things that you know, you're kind of tapping into me is, first of all, the idea of like always pursuing something that you actually enjoy. You kind of mentioned this a little bit as Bozema St. John, she spoke yesterday, she said basically the exact same thing, which is every different part of you, personal and professional, is going to become a part of your professional journey and make you better. And that really resonated with me. And I think that like doing something that you actually enjoy is is a big part of that, even if you are 
shifting between startup and big company and different industries. That's just creating a more well-rounded you. So you've been in marketing for quite a while, lots of different roles, lots of different kind of sides of the business. Of course, you had that short stint as a banker. Let's not, you know, obviously forget that, but I'm sure you've seen a ton of things come and go. What are a couple of trends you're currently watching? There's a lot going on. I think first and foremost, and it's kind of apropos to to like Twilio and what's going on this week is just privacy. Obviously, privacy is at the forefront of what everyone's thinking. As a consumer, I love it. Like Apple did a spot a while ago where it's like this guy's kind of walking around and all these things and icons and things are following him. And then he flips the switch and they all kind of go away. As a consumer, I love it. Totally. Um, as a marketer, it makes it really challenging. But with that said, it also forces us to be more creative as well. So in that respect, it's probably good for us and on the folks on this call. With that comes the challenges of it. But what do we do about it? And we're always struggling to answer those questions and I don't think anyone has it figured out. I mean, there's like the contextual piece of it. Let's figure out how we can place our ads in contextual media or capturing first party data. And that's kind of the no brainer one, the one that everyone's kind of working towards. It's also a, like a bit of a value exchange because I have no issues given Legoland. I've, I've three kids, so I have no issues given Legoland my info and answering questions because they're going to give me something in return. Right. They're going to they're going to give me a discount, or you know, I'll get that five hundred dollar room for four hundred dollars, something like that. You know what the so, trade is, and you are fully in on it. Yeah, I'm totally cool with it. It's kind of like a, a loyalty program as well. You're giving them your info. Not only do they have what I've given them, something like a loyalty, they also know like what I'm doing as well. I like the way you're framing that around it forcing creativity with, with privacy. I've heard this phrase thrown around a couple of times, and it's really in the context of how both privacy and personalization, there's increasing demands from the consumer side at the exact same time. I've heard it called the privacy personalization paradox, which is kind of to your point around like, it's getting harder for marketers to do some of the things that they typically do. But in my humble opinion, it doesn't exist. It's like a false trade-off, right? You just mentioned first-party data. It's about knowing what data to collect and how to collect it. And Twilio recently did a report, and we found that there's like 80% of companies that are still relying on third-party data, which, as we know, is going away in 2023. So like, the clock is really ticking now we're at the last yeah. like later half of, of 2022 but that idea of like trust and value exchange that i think that you had right there is exactly how we get to kind of like that future that i think consumers want what other trends are you watching i mean everyone's reading about like the metaverse and 3.0 and cryptocurrency and all that stuff that, oh yeah you know, there's an nft conference it, right now in new york so well we're not there we're 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 here <laughs> we're in better places but you know, the most interesting part of that for me, and probably it's my background in gaming, is just the game side of it and the gamification of everything that's going on. When you think about getting people, if you're a media company and you're trying to get people to stay on your site or whatever, it's like, well, how do we gamify that, you know, to make it more interesting so people want to stick around? I feel like games are kind of the hallmark of everything that's going on. Look, think about like all the players in games from, you know, Apple and Google to Netflix to meta 
and what's going on with the Oculus. So I think that whole world is fascinating to me. And kind of on top of that, it's like all the devices. So I was playing around with the Oculus the other night. And um, I don't know, have you toyed around with it? Only at like well. conferences. I've never actually really gotten into one. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool. Listen, it's, you know, you go into Horizon World and you can you interact with folks. And I think it was after game six of the Warriors Celtics basketball game where they were showing highlights and like in, in world they're showing highlights and, and just to see, I mean, that's just a, that's just a starting point. So just to see what that's going to be like, or I think the Foo Fighters were doing an acoustic set in VR. So, you know, like very cool, super early, super nascent, but as marketers, like, what's that going to look like? You know, is it going to be like a virtual New York, like Times Square, where there's going to be stuff all over the place? Times Square oh. is terrible enough. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe there's some places that'll be like Central Park, where you can yeah. go and it'll be serene. Calm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You, That's a nice version. We'll do like a little meditation with birds chirping or something like that. So. I think one of my favorite examples that kind of illustrates what you're just talking about is Pokemon Go. What was that? Like maybe three, four, five, I might be aging myself. I'm like, how many years ago was that? Two? No, it was probably like five. But it's all these like grown adults running around cities trying to catch like their virtual creatures. And the kicker for me, though, was actually a good business move because the brick and mortar partnerships that they created, I was yeah. reading something I think pizza sales started to like increase when they launched Pokemon Go. And it's because they created like Pokestops at these pizza shops, which is just yeah. incredibly smart to kind of like blend the real life with the virtual. And imagine like if you had, I don't know, Apple glasses or kind of something like on top of that and kind of living in that way. It's funny because speaking about products, I don't know if you've seen the new Snap, the drone. It's called the Pix. It's it's. Granted, not meta, not VR, but yep. just like in terms of product innovation. Yeah. Instead of doing a selfie yourself, it's basically like you have a drone following you around. And honestly, and, uh, better yeah. than people taking a selfie with a stick <laughs> and then like maybe falling off a cliff or something. Like, thank you for the safety of that drone, truly. <laughs> Seriously. Now I'm curious, as somebody who's kind of like worked on teams that are just pretty much in the center of the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist, what are some new customer behaviors that you've seen in the last years in particular? I think everyone's lives have changed big time. I mean, I do a lot more stuff at home. I used to go to the gym on the on like the drive into the office and um, I don't do that anymore. I try to do stuff at home. Like I invested in a bike, albeit not a Peloton. Sorry if there are any Peloton fans. A real a bike that you can go outside with. No, actually, it's still a stationary bike, but it was just like a, it's, it was just a less expensive one. <laughs> wow. Okay. Don't tell Peloton. It's okay. <laughs> but between that and between on-demand classes and stuff like that, I was just spending a lot more time at home. And I, I think, like from a business standpoint, you look at just people's consumer behavior. I, I wasn't shopping. I used Instacart a lot, and so from like even going to doctors and stuff. I didn't really like going to doctors anyway, but I think telehealth and that's still prevalent now. It's like, if Huge. I can avoid going to the doctor, why go? The The interesting thing is I was taking online martial arts classes because I've done some of that in my past. And they've since, as things have changed, they've since made it in person. So the irony is I can't go anymore because I can't make it. I can't, I just, it's, I don't have enough time to commute back and forth, but that's so funny. Uh, that's a, that's a different story altogether. That's great. It, it is true. Is like, 
the power is and always has been in the hands of the consumer. But, you know, today's markets are so dynamic that you just kind of talked about, like, in person, no, online, no, in person. And I think what's interesting is like that instant gratification convenience. I was in San Francisco recently, and this actually freaked me out. I ordered caviar, and it took 12 minutes for the order to come from the time that I placed it to the time that it was like in my hands. And I was like, is that too convenient? How convenient is too convenient? 12 minutes was the cusp for me. I was like completely floored by that. That's kind of scary. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody <laughs> agrees with me. Somebody where, else. Where? I was sure it was caviar? <laughs> oh, shots are fired. I was, I was talking to somebody about it. They're like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And I was freaked out about it very clearly that no, I actually think that I maybe should wait at least, give me 15 to be ready for my food. It's when interesting I, though, like on the behavior point though, just to, to share, yeah. I'm at Universal now in the film group and home entertainment. And when COVID started, it was just pretty clear. People are not going to go sit in a movie theater. So like in our industry, there was just like a ton of disruption. People going and we're launching movies in the home. I remember the first title we did that the first big title we did that with was trolls i think it was in the theater a little bit but is also at home but you look at that now and you look at like just our industry and how much it's changed and how much new release content kind of shows up on svod services first you know it's always been kind of a confusing business because you don't know when stuff's coming out and when i bet if we did a poll right now what is the number of days between when a movie comes out theatrically and when it comes out in home entertainment i guarantee you like, I can't tell you. Yeah, there, there'll be responses all over the board. But it's even more confusing now because we, there are all the other services out there. But the big trend is like people got used to watching big movies at home and they're okay with that. But things are changing again. And, you know, some of the big movies you look at Top Gun, you look at Jurassic, not being too self-serving. But They've been doing really well. Yeah, you big, watch, yeah, big weekend. You should right? watch Jurassic and watch the the Velociraptor and the T-Rex. You know, you should check that out. <laughs> you can make your own decision after that and get back that's to right. us. That's right. That's right. Correct. <laughs> but that's just an example of how things have changed. But but they're 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 switching back a little bit as well. So nothing's kind of nothing static. That's interesting. It's like it, it everything changes so quickly, but especially in media. And I think one of the other ones that's kind of similar to this is cord cutting and a la carte versus subscription models. I'm wondering, are you seeing any kind of like patterns in media? I feel like in the fashion world, what's old is new again, right? And I'm sitting here watching people dress like Cher from Clueless and wondering, you know, if there's any examples from other industries. Do you have any examples of playing that of that playing out in media as well? It's like the renter's economy, right? Like, what's the point in owning anything? And I mean, you see how this played out. Like I talked about games a little bit and you look at the music business and there's still a transactional business there. People still want to own their movies or own their music. And then you're seeing that in the film and TV world as well. I think for film, self-serving, admittedly. Please, yes, of course. But I, but I think for film... Because there's such a collector's mentality around a lot of films, people like really want to show that they own it, whether it's on their like their like their Apple Store or their Prime account, or even like there are many parts of the country where they're showing stacks of DVDs on their walls. It's kind of like a oh, look at me. The it's last kind of remaining like, blockbuster. That's right. That's <laughs> yes. right. It's kind of like their medals of honor, so to speak. When you look at the trends historically, though, it's pretty evident. And even when you look at games and 
you know, it's not just like more subscription based because it was a long time ago where there was like downloadable content for console games. I feel like it was like 15 years ago or something like that. I love that that example of that shift. And I think one of my favorite examples of that is Spotify, like obviously major disruptor entering, yeah. you know, the subscription model uh, for the music industry. And, uh, you know, talking about data, their wrapped campaign at the end of the year for me personally, I think is just one of the most brilliant campaigns that leverages first party data. And I think if any other company really tried to do this, it might feel creepy that you know that they're like watching you listen to all of these different tracks. But to me, I'm like, I feel so seen. Like Spotify understands me. Like, yes, I do listen to Olivia Rodrigo. It's totally fine. Maybe it's not age appropriate, but she gets my angst. But before I get ahead of myself, I don't want to talk about campaigns too much. I want to know how you lay the foundation. So what? how do you define good data, Ted? I feel like data is anything that kind of helps me build a relationship with folks that I'm trying to reach. I mean, for us, we're always thinking about our goals. And, you know, in some cases, if we're trying to launch like a big movie and we're just trying to generate a ton of awareness among everybody in the country, then that kind of, that's one path. The other is if we have a very precise targeted user and we know let's let's say someone's you know watched a certain film before as an example or they're a fan of this genre or this actor etc then those are data points that really enable us to kind of get the word out in many cases because we're in the transactional window to, to actually drive conversions for us so it just depends but in general it's like you know past viewing for us specifically us being like in my current role, it's like past viewing behavior, genres, talent, point of purchase. Like an interesting thing is people buy films. Some people get it from Apple and that's good for us to know. And specifically where, whether it's on mobile or desktop, CTV or, or whatever, maybe it's on their fire. So we just want to know that. And all those things together kind of enable us to push together our broader strategy. I would say the one other thing, because that's all very tactical, is just... Overall, it's like, who are we trying to reach? And, you know, we have the benefit of like an awesome theatrical team. And oftentimes the movies have done well, like a Jurassic. So we have a lot of data that we have to work with from the start. But there are some smaller titles. Maybe we want to reposition the title a little bit or think about different areas that we want to lean into, whether it's a different edition of the movie or what have you. So that data upfront helps inform our big picture strategy. And then we kind of dig into the, the more tactical stuff. I want to talk about that too. So how are you using all of And you talked about a little bit about this, but are you using data to build those marketing strategies and tactics? We'll have the information from our theatrical counterparts. So we'll have not just exit polls, but we know like you know, what types of creative are working, for example, what's resonating with people, what imagery is really working. So on the creative perspective, it's like it helps kind of us optimize that. It's messaging. And then the big piece of it is like the media. If we know someone watched a trailer, then it's, yeah. like Probably more they, likely to go see they it. might be into it. Yeah. yeah. If they maybe watched it for a little bit and they abandoned, maybe there's a different insight there. So it's kind of using all the data points, all the above. But media is a big piece of it, just like the remarketing, the targeting, 
we do a lot of testing with our own data versus some of the native targeting. And uh, as you'd expect, our stuff does a little better because it's makes sense. Uh, I mean, we higher quality. Yeah, higher quality. We kind of know who they are. I would say that it is important to figure out and think about what the goals are and what we're trying to do and not collect data just for data's sake. Because I do think a lot of people fall into that. Let's get data. Let's get first party data. And then you have this whole mountain of data sitting there and you just don't know what, what to Scratch do with your it. head. What do you do yeah. with it? Right. Yeah. And a lot of people have mentioned this on, on some of the sessions here, but it's like personalization. We're working on that. We're working really hard on that because ideally we'd love to deliver a different email to every single person based on what's in your locker, who you like, et cetera. And that's not just us, the game companies. There are some folks out there that are doing like a really great job of it. But I think that's the holy grail of having the data, just being able to personalize everything, all the different channels. Yeah, the the Spotify wrapped campaign of like, Kaylee listened to this many minutes. Like, absolutely. I think that's so interesting when you're talking about segmentation and personalization, putting the audience first. Like that is the language that we speak at Segment and um. I think you're touching a little bit on this is like the balance between quantitative and qualitative as well, I think is something perhaps a little bit interesting and intuition versus hard data, I think is something that Bozema kind of spoke about a little bit yesterday. Do you have an example of when maybe data actually helped you surface something that might've surprised you? So I didn't go through my whole career background intentionally, but like one of the one of the companies I was at for a little bit was called Daily MVP. It was a fantasy gaming app, so Daily Fantasy Sports. And we had I don't know if any of the folks remember this, but it was a while ago. But like we were coming out at the same time as like DraftKings and FanDuel, not as well. We had twenty five million in bank, and those guys had hundreds and hundreds of million, and but. I, I remember like we had Tom Brady and, and like he was one of our spokespeople and everything seemed to be going really well. A lot of awareness. We got to number one on the chart. People were downloading the app. We did a ton of focus groups and all the focus groups said, people love it. We're killing it. It's like, you know what? And then the, our numbers, our retention numbers were great, but like, whatever. They're in these focus groups and they're telling us they love it and they're doing it well and they're cranking through it. But when we did some, like when we looked at actual like specific data in terms of how are they really interacting with the app? You know, what we realized, and it seems like such a no-brainer in hindsight, but we're running so fast. It's like, and it's almost like you don't even want, it's bad news. I don't even, I'm, I'm just kind of going for it. because It's hard got, to stop and pause yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I know. I got like, like all these guys talking about it and we're number one on the charts and we're killing it and we're going to, et cetera, et cetera. People were barely getting through, like our onboarding process was horrible. It was horrible. And you could see that in the data. It was very clear. I feel like if we had been kind of a little more attuned to that, then you know, FanDuel and DraftKings would have been out of business. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're, we're a small company. This is going to be great. Yeah. Uh, but those are one of the like one of the things. It's like it's the information's right in front of you. But the question is, are you doing something with it? Kind of like what we just said. It's, you know, don't collect data for data's sake. It's like, what's the action you're going to take? You got to know what data to collect, how to collect it. It really does all start with governance and making sure that like all of your naming conventions, are, it's like, it's the stuff that's not sexy at all. That is just like so necessary and asking all of those why questions to begin with. I was talking to a CMO last week and she was kind of telling me something a little bit similar about this, like qualitative, quantitative. And she said that 
quantitative is the leading indicator and qualitative is the lagging indicator for her. And, you know, if you're really trying, you can make data say whatever you want your data to say back to you. But it's about connecting the why and connecting the dots between the qualitative and the quantitative to actually get to the answer. Now, Ted, this is probably like a nearly impossible question, but what would you say is your most important piece of collected data to drive your customer engagement? I know. Hot seat, I told you. Yeah. Well, I would just say, so here's my hot hot seat response. It just depends. It really does depend on like what I'm trying to accomplish. I go back to the film example, but if it's a film, I kind of want to know if they watched it or not. I want to know if they've watched it in theaters or not. If I'm marketing like a game, it could be the same way. If I'm, if I'm working on like a Call of Duty or something, which I'm not, but I'm working on a Call of Duty, if I was working on a Call of Duty, are they franchise fans? So that's it more generally. But even from a development perspective, it's like, oh, what levels did they get through? How did they really interact with it? So a lot of it is the, at least for me, is the behavioral data that is fascinating. So sorry, yeah. a little bit of a, a little bit of a cop out, but it, it just depends. No, watching people interact and really understanding their full journey, I think makes perfect sense. And I think one of the things that you mentioned earlier, too, is you have all of this data kind of coming in from a different brand or a different device, or they're watching a different piece of content, a trailer versus a future film. And that's the stuff that makes all of this extremely complicated and building a really connected customer engagement journey. So how are you thinking about unifying all of that data across your portfolio? Well, I was thinking maybe like something like a CDP would be helpful for... Shout out. I mean... (laughs) I I swear, everybody, I did not tell him to do that shameless plug. It was not pre-planned. Well, I mean, it could be like an Uber Excel document or something if you really want to, but... You heard but, it here I first. Mean, Ted, she uses, yeah, Excel documents for all of his data. <laughs> but it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, you need a central repository for all of your data because many times in any organization, especially large organizations, sometimes the left doesn't know what the right's doing and vice versa. Even within small groups, we're part of a large organization like Universal is at NBCU, so... I mean, that happens with us. So we're really trying to, we're trying to unify things internally, just more generally. But I think, I think it's common and even within, you know, within our own group and not necessarily like a data piece per se, but on my team, if the owned team is doing something that the paid team doesn't know about, it's like, well, you know, you have the stuff that's going on over here that you can help everyone else. So everyone just needs to to be kind of on the same page. And I think something like a CDP enables that connectivity. Yeah, the connectivity and the real time, right? So like getting that customer 360 and holistic view in real time. I think about that with ABM all the time. And, you know, obviously that's kind of like the more B2B example, but it drives efficiency. And especially in economic times, like I think we're really starting to experience right now, conversion and efficiency is maybe the name of the game. So super important to be able to be able to activate on data in real time. Fun question for you. And I know it's probably another tough one, but it's what's your favorite piece of data or your favorite data-driven marketing campaign? Good question. Like, so when I think of data-driven marketing campaign, it depends again, but I think of like data in or data out. So when I think of data in, I think of kind of like the insights that like are used to get to like, whether it's a 
great piece of creative or a great campaign. And I think I referenced the Apple example, like something super creative, but there are a lot of consumer insights. I'm sure there's a ton of research and a ton of testing that went out of that. On the data out piece, when we think about specifically whether it's kind of more of a lead gen thing where we're trying to capture information or whether it's conversions or what have you, I think like what Coinbase, I think it was Coinbase did with the QR code for the Super Bowl was, yes. was really interesting. I honestly, I saw that. I'm like, what the hell, what the hell is that? That's what, what everybody that? thought. You yeah. Know? Like, it, what is that QR was, code? <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, it was kind of enough to make me want to check it out. So something like this, it's, it's bold and clearly there's, it's, that's about as DR as you get. And really cool too. Like, you know it's a captive audience for the Super Bowl and they're doing something measurable for brand, which is kind of hard to do. So kudos to them. Who do you think is doing it right in terms of customer engagement? Well, these these guys are doing a lot of things right, but I think Amazon's doing a, I think Amazon's doing a good job. Definitely. Um, I have some friends at Amazon and I, I give them grief sometimes because they're just, they just know so much about me that it's kind of scary in some cases. So where That's I shop, line. like, yeah, it's like the customization on the storefront to like them listening to me, like when, like on this call, I'm sure like Alexis and back kind of find that. She's always on. listening. She's yeah. listening. Or, or stopping by at Whole Foods. It's just like they do they do a really good job. And even like all the prime video and film or what have you, like Twitch, they just they have such a broad base of stuff going on. There's so many touch points that it's kind of theirs for the losing. They have a lot of different pieces in place. So but they do a great job of it. And a lot of it is personalized, a lot of it is relevant to me. And they do improve people's lives and they've certainly improved mine i can't wait to see what happens with like the, you know the robotics and i think they launched something right it was like the astro or i'm not sure how it did but that's that's right around the corner like when when that stuff's going to happen for us so it's it's interesting interesting future but those yeah. guys are great at it they're great at it they're always breaking boundaries i mean i think that if your name becomes a verb like in some way, you're probably doing something right, right? So yeah, Amazon is definitely, I think, one of the reasons why everybody is talking about how to build like the best customer experience and across all these different channels is like, in many ways, they've invented kind of the beginning of this like very omni-channel customer 360, which is really interesting. Last question. Yeah. And What's your best piece of advice to somebody who's trying to build the customer engagement journey? You know, we've talked about goals and I mean, ultimately, you know, most of the people on this call are probably, you know, marketers and and this is not going to be like rocket science or a big aha, but it's all about the consumer. I know corny, like laymaster, but and like it's the true. way I think about it. I had, a, I had a mentor share this with me early in my career and I've always taken it with me. And he said, picture a big boardroom. And, you know, you have your, your CMO and your CEO and your CFO and your ops person and like all these important people around the room. But there's always got to be one empty seat, every single meeting in the room. And that is the seat for the consumer. And in fact, that, sh- that seat should really be at the head of the table. So I would say like with that, whatever we do, it's so easy to kind of get caught up into, oh, I got to do this, this. And I have all these constituents. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if it doesn't resonate with the consumer. So that would be 
I don't know, maybe think about it through that lens. And it certainly helped me focus on what's important. I think that's not. spot on. I appreciate that. Keeping the customer at the center of everything you do, remembering to listen, certainly wise words to end on. Thank you so much for your insights today, Ted. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital first economy, being data-driven is no longer aspirational. It's necessary. Segment's leading customer data platform empowers every team with good data. From marketing and product to engineering and analytics, Segment unifies data silos into a single view of the customer. It allows teams to make data-driven decisions and personalize customer engagement in real time, all with one single platform to collect and manage your data. Curious to find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to be their data foundation? You can learn more by visiting segment.com.